Welcome to Adventology, the podcast dedicated to helping you be ready for Jesus. Here now is the host of Adventology, Travis Walker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Adventology. I hope you are doing well. As you know, everything we do on this podcast is designed to help you be ready for Jesus. And in this episode, I invited my friend and pastor, Daniel Royal, back on the podcast. He was my guest in episode 18, entitled The Other Children of Abraham. Many of you reached out to me telling me how blessed you were from that study. And he is continuing that as he's working currently on his Ph.D. in biblical studies uh, connected to that topic. But during that process... Um, He has also found time to write on another topic that I think will be of interest to you today, um, and that is particularly on the topic of the resurrection. Now, of course, every year at Easter we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and many people are looking forward to the resurrection of the just that the Bible says will take place right before his coming. But what many people do not understand as well is the concept of the second resurrection. And with that, of course, there are other topics that play into that as far as the nature of judgment and what happens to the wicked after they die. Do they burn eternally in hell, as many believe? Or are they, as the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, resurrected to face judgment a second time? So these are topics that we get into in this episode, and I know that you will be blessed because um, anytime we study the Bible, we are assured a blessing. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Well, Daniel, man, it is so great to have you on the podcast again. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It was great to talk with you again, Travis, as well. Uh, It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a couple years. We had you on here talking about uh, the topic of Islam, and and really the topic was Abraham's other children and how they interact with God's people, particularly Israel, but also the Christian church throughout um, the, the centuries leading up to the Reformation. So it was a very interesting podcast. I had a lot of good feedback from it. And uh, glad to have you again. So what are you up to these days? Well, uh, since the last time we talked, uh, I've uh, continued work on that same topic. Um, In fact, I just had an article published uh, last year uh, on uh, the subject of Genesis 16 uh, and Ishmael, uh, more specifically Hagar, um, and uh, how the passage portrays her. Um, So that uh, article appeared in the Journal of the Adventist Theological Society. Um, so I've been working on that. Um, I've also, uh, which same topic uh, is a, a theme of interest of mine, and uh, I've been working on a uh, my doctoral program. Um, I finished my classwork, I'm now working on the dissertation phase of it, um, and that's on that same theme. Um, uh, my dissertation is focused on uh, how the children of Abraham uh, are portrayed in the book of Genesis. Um so that's uh, where I am now, um, and uh, I'm still uh, living in Maryland, uh, serving as a uh, pastor at uh, the Burnt Mills Church here, and 
um, been here just about four years. Uh, so uh, things are going well for me. Awesome. Yeah. And you've got a growing family. Uh, is it three now that you have three children? Yes. Yes. Uh, in the midst of all the other things going on, uh, we added one more to our family. Uh, <laughs> so we have, she's 18 months old now. Uh, Eva has joined us. And uh, so, yes, our family continues to grow. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm super excited. And last time we were just catching up, you told me about this article that you had written, and it was really kind of a response to something that happened in your PhD studies. And so the article uh, is entitled A Resurrection of Condemnation, a Study of the Second Resurrection Across the Canon. And so I'm just curious, like, how did that come about? And uh, what, what, uh, yeah, like what motivated you to write that article? One of the classes that I took in my PhD program uh, was uh, specific to the Gospels. Um, and uh, the professor uh, that I uh, was studying with uh, chose to focus it more specifically uh, rather than just looking at the Gospels as a whole. Instead, um, he narrowed in on the topic of the resurrection in the Gospels. Um, and so for the class, uh, it was fascinating to, to really dig in and explore uh, the idea of the resurrection, uh, particularly, obviously, in the Gospels, the the primary focus there is on the resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, we spent a lot of time focused on um, what uh, some of the arguments are surrounding uh, belief in the resurrection and uh, historicity of it. And uh, so that was really the focus of the class. Um, but for the major paper that I wrote for the class, um, I decided I would look at a passage in John 5, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus speaks about uh, two resurrections. Um, and so that became the starting point for uh, writing the article. And then uh, once I finished with the class and had finished the article, um, I have since uh, submitted it. And so it's undergoing review now uh, for possible publication later. Yeah. And we're definitely going to put the link to that in the show notes once that is published. I'm sure it will be. And yeah, I think this is a really relevant topic. You know, I often. Um, you know, in my own study have been amazed how we do not understand death particularly because we have a limited or a unbiblical viewpoint of what it means to be human. And especially since I have been studying discipleship intensely during my own doctoral studies right now, I've been doing some work on theological anthropology because I feel like it's essential to understand what it means to be human if we're going to understand, number one, what salvation is and what it does for us, and then two, how do we respond to that salvation? That's called discipleship, and discipleship, if we don't understand uh, the nature of man, we're not going to understand how man is restored back to uh, the original intent God had when he created us. And so I think the implications for the anthropology of, of uh, humanity uh, is, is seen in a lot of different areas, including uh, the most basic one, which is what happens when you die. And I think that's kind of what you addressed. And so what are some of the assumptions that people make about the nature of man that may or may not be true? 
Well, there, there are all kinds of assumptions, and, and I think oftentimes we don't really explore or, or think about in, in much depth uh, what, are, what our nature is as human beings. Uh, and even though our belief does affect all kinds of different areas of life. Um, so, for example, one of the very popular beliefs, uh, and it, it's across cultures and across even uh, religions around the world, um, is the idea that we as human beings uh, have some sort of dual nature. Um, the, the term that's often used is separating out the soul and the body. Um, the soul being some sort of non-material or, or some sort of uh, ghost-like spirit that exists in, in an alternate setting apart from the body, and then that there is a physical body in which we live. And so that that popular belief um, manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. So you have the idea that you know graveyards are inhabited by ghosts. Um, you have uh, the idea of where it is that one goes when they die. Um, so, uh, for example, in, in a number of uh, Eastern faiths, um, there is some form of, of transmigration of souls, the idea that um, somebody who lives in some later time is in fact a reincarnation uh, of one who lived in an earlier time. Um, there are those kinds of uh, manifestations or expressions of of that kind of dualistic belief. Um, on the other hand, um, and this is kind of true in more recent times, um, there there has been a, a much more of a rejection of that belief out of a kind of a secularist mindset, um, that as there are a growing number of people who in one way or another reject religion altogether and focus on what the the world is around us or the materialism um, that is, uh, you know, just what we can see and touch and experience. Um, there has been a, a, a loss of that dualistic belief. Uh, and there has just been a focus on the life here and now. And the idea of that is that upon death, one is just dead and, and that's the end. Um, and so uh, it's not, we oftentimes take the assumptions for granted and don't always explore but we do then reach conclusions um, about not only our life here in the present, but also uh, what is the nature of, if there is an afterlife altogether, what does that look like? All of those are based on what our beliefs are uh, of what makes us a human beings. Uh, and really it comes down to that uh, assumption of a distinction. Are we dualistic? Do we have a, a soul and a body that are two separate things? Or do we just have a body that is present with us? And there, I think the Bible does give us an answer uh, as to what, uh, which of those two uh, is what our nature is as human beings. Uh, and that is found uh, in its clearest sense in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And uh, there in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, uh, as it's uh, describing uh, the creation process, uh, and how it is that God brought uh, human beings into existence in the beginning, um, there it says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living, and there the word in Hebrew is nefesh. Uh, various translations translate it different ways. Um, the King James Version, for example, translates it as soul. Um, the New King James Version translates it as being. 
the English Standard Version translates it as creature. Um, it, it's the description of that combination of the dust of the ground plus the breath of life. And those two pieces being integrated become this living nefesh. Um, and so when, when we're able to look at uh, and examine what that particular passage means, there it's describing uh, the integrated person uh, that is who we are as human beings. In other words, God takes the dust of the ground and forms kind of what we might call like a, a mud mannequin. Um, he, he just is taking the, the elements of the soil and forming them into uh, a, a, an inanimate yet human being. And then he adds to uh, this creation the breath of life, um, which we would understand to be kind of that life force, um, the power to be alive. And the result is then us as human beings. Um, and the, the, uh, in that description, that does not then create a dualistic nature to us. The Bible's description is that we are monistic. We are one. There, there's not two separate parts to who we are. Instead, that combination of pieces. In fact, one of the best descriptions I've heard of it is that the, the Bible here in this passage and in other verses describes us as being uh, animated bodies. And that's in distinction from incarnated souls, that mm. we are bodies that have been brought to life rather than a soul that exists in some alternate sphere that then is given a body. Um, and so that it's an important distinction because it affects not only like we're even talking about now, how we view ourselves, um, but also how we view uh, life around us and uh, what our ultimate fate will be in the world to come. Yeah, I really like that because I think science, the more we understand about human nature from a scientific point of view, like you mentioned, and, and yes, true, most of these scientists, most of these researchers are not believers, but they are providing research that is evidence-based. And I believe it is clear, especially during this last year of COVID, I mean, I don't think anyone can argue anymore that our mental health, our physical health, our spiritual health are all integrated with one another and that they all affect each other. And therefore, like you were saying, this monistic, this integrated understanding of human nature um, not only makes sense from a biblical point of view, like you pointed out here, you see those three parts mentioned here, the body clearly from the dust, the, the breath or the spirit coming from God, and then becoming a living being or a living soul. That's our consciousness, right? So you, you see the three there becoming one. And uh, But I believe as we continue to um, become more and more advanced in in terms of our understanding of knowledge, what is it, doubling every, what, three or four years now? Knowledge is continuing to double. Uh, and, and it's just becoming clearer and clearer that the the mind is not some sort of separate entity from the body, but that the mind is integrated in the body and cannot exist without the body. Now, that's from a scientific point of view, but I'm interested in f some more of your studies from a biblical point of view. So uh, where, where do some of these misunderstandings come from? Well, there are multiple origins uh, for them, and much of it is just uh, historical. 
um, circumstances of trying to make sense of uh, life. Um, so particularly in, in Western society, um, United States, Europe, Australia, um, the, the major contributor has been uh, historical Christian teaching, tracing all the way back uh, even to uh, the early days of Christianity, which were then affected by Greek philosophy. Um, and so the, there has been a prevailing belief, and, and it really has its origins uh, in uh, a Greek philosopher by the name of Plato, um, who was trying to solve the problem of uh, addressing um, relativism, uh, which is really a natural result that comes if we don't have a belief in some uh, entity or power outside of ourselves. So if, if the uh, final uh, authority of all things is us as human beings, well, we have as many human beings on the planet as you know we can count, which are in the billions today. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if I decide something and someone else decides something different, who gets to be the one to decide who's right? Well, uh, the way that Plato solved that problem was he said, well, um, there is truth outside of us and they're the, the disembodied souls live in that realm of truth. And so we can appeal to that as the higher truth that then resolves whatever differences of opinion we have here. Well, because of his belief in that um, alternate existence uh, of human beings as disembodied souls, then later on, uh, some of the early Christian teachers trying to address the same issues of relativism as well as uh, trying to explain the afterlife began to incorporate some of the ideas of Plato into Christian teaching. And so out of that then came the uh, attempt to reconcile uh, Plato's teachings with uh, Christian teaching, and then came a hybrid of the two. Um, and so uh, within Christianity, there, there developed the idea that uh, when one dies, there is an immediate uh, after existence. So upon death, one would go to heaven or hell. Uh, and then later in the medieval uh, period, they developed additional potential uh, destinations. So, uh, for example, purgatory uh, developed uh, or a belief in limbo um, in order to address some of the uh, challenges that came uh, with beliefs in various things. So, for example, purgatory developed because there came the question, well, if let's say someone didn't do anything really terrible, but they weren't really a good person either. Um, and they still had uh, some sins that had not been resolved, then what would happen at death? And so then came the development of the teaching that, well, one went to purgatory to purge. That's where the term purgatory comes from, to purge um, some of those sins that needed to be dealt with. And then one could enter heaven. Um, so all, all of these various beliefs all developed uh, as these processes across history came to that brings us to today where we have uh, uh, Christianity even uh, has a number of different beliefs uh, about what happens to someone when they die and all of it is in some way attempting to reconcile both the historical contributions and what it is that the Bible teaches now one of the major things that that the Bible does make clear in its teaching is, uh, and that's our topic for today, is the resurrection. Um, the idea that 
Jesus died on a cross, he rose from the dead, and that because Jesus rose from the dead, he has the power over death, and that there will be a bodily resurrection uh, of believers that will come uh, at some point in the future in which those who have longed for Jesus appearing will rise from the dead, and they, they will receive uh, a gift of eternal life um, that Jesus has promised to all uh, who commit to following him. Yeah, and it's not just Christianity that embraces, and we could call this the doctrine of the immortal soul, if that's even a term, but this idea, like you said, that uh, humanity's true existence is is not bodily, but spiritual. Uh, this this um, this idea that ancestor worship, this idea of um, ghosts, this this idea of spirits. I mean, these these concepts are prevalent in almost all religion of the world outside of atheism, which I guess isn't a religion. <laughs> um, and and so when you you know if someone was to turn on the television, watch a movie. Um, this is the general viewpoint of almost everyone living in the world today, right? That when you die, there is an immediate release of that person's soul or spirit into the cosmos. And it, it has been present for in a number of different settings. Um, take, for example, there are TV shows that are, are dedicated to the idea of uh, being able to make contact with uh, the other side or, or loved ones who have passed on and that. You know, there it, it's not even a, a Christian uh, context to those discussions. In fact, many Christians would uh, not uh, believe in, in the idea of, you know, for example, spirit mediums who are able to communicate uh, with those who are beyond the grave. Um, and nevertheless, you know, there are a number of different uh, prevailing ideas uh, that uh, incorporate that even into popular culture. Um, and it again adopts that the implications of that belief that uh, there is some sort of entity or spirit, uh, again, a, a disembodied ghost um, that exists uh, following death uh, here in this world. Yeah, and I think that obviously leads to the natural question, and we talk about this most often at funerals, um, and it's kind of an interesting dynamic that you'll hear in some funerals where the idea that that person is now in heaven is talked about. And then they go to the grave site and they bury the body and then they start quoting verses related to the resurrection. And that has always confused people. How can somebody be both in heaven and then why have a resurrection at all if that's the case? And I guess that's really the point of your paper and specifically not just one resurrection but two resurrections so let's get into this this biblical uh teaching right and and maybe that's a great question to start with why why have a resurrection well the primary reason for a resurrection uh is what we have been talking about uh, already in other words if if the biblical teaching is that we are animated bodies rather than uh, incarnated souls, um, then if there is to be any sort of afterlife, it can't be the the ghost that goes on to that alternate existence. It must be that um, 
we as human beings, in order to have any sort of afterlife, have to come back to life. In other words, the body has to be present in order for uh, there to be uh, any sort of uh, eternal life or reward. Um, and it, it's there where the when we look at the biblical evidence in its totality and say, what does the Bible say about the nature of human beings? And then the promise that the Bible gives that um, there is an eternal life um, that is to come um, in order for that to happen. Again, there must be a resurrection. Um, and then what becomes clear is that um, the Bible across the totality, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, all emphasize uh, in one way or another this idea of a resurrection, um, that there is uh, some time uh, in which bodies will be brought to life, uh, and that is the context in which um, the fate or reward um, that individuals will have for decisions uh, that we have made in this life uh, will then be given, uh, and God is the one who then uh, meets out. Uh, what it is that each person will receive. Yeah, and I think a lot of times we focus, rightly so, on the on the resurrection of the just because that's the the resurrection of hope. That's the resurrection that ultimately brings us into the presence of God, into heaven. I mean, we we read the Book of Revelation. We see particularly like uh, chapters twenty one and twenty two. We we are re united with the tree of life. And it's interesting, if you go back to Genesis, the first consequence for sin was that they were banned access to the tree of life. And the reason for that was given in Genesis was that they would live eternally if they had access to that tree of life, which supports this concept that you were saying that uh, humanity was always meant to exist bodily, and therefore the tree of life was the source of that continued um, force, life force, as you referred to um, that breath of life or that force of life that came in their initial creation, that that was going to be sustained or continue to renewed, almost like charging your battery, right? Um, your iPhone, you, you have to keep it plugged in and, and eventually otherwise it runs out of battery. And so the tree of life kind of was that perpetual recharge for, for humanity and removing that kind of removed that eternal existence. And then we see in Revelation, of course, the the tree of life is once again brought back into our possession. And of course, we're, we're going to live eternally with God. And that's that's the hope, you know, and we read those passages where death and, and crying and pain and all those things are, are gone. Um, but when you, um, what, what people don't often think about is this idea of a second resurrection. So talk a little bit about that. Like, what is the second resurrection? Sure. Um, well, across the Bible, as uh, kind of alluded to already, um, there there's a teaching with regard to resurrection um, that appears multiple times. Um, not only are there stories of those who were resurrected, um, so, uh, for example, both Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament participate in resurrections, um, but then later Jesus uh, performs resurrections, and then he himself uh, is resurrected. Um, but along with that, there is the teaching that uh, there will be, um, in order for this ultimate fate to occur, there will be two resurrections. Uh, and so the first uh, clear and unambiguous text that talks about uh, the idea of two resurrections 
uh, is found in Daniel chapter 12 uh, and verses 1 and 2. Um, and uh, there it says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. And then he says, But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And here's the key text. This is verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So here, Daniel speaks of uh, not only a resurrection, where he says those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, but then he describes two outcomes for that resurrection, that some, their fate or their outcome would be everlasting life, and for others, it would be shame and everlasting contempt. It's later uh, in the book of John, or here quoting Jesus, uh, that, again, you get this reference to two resurrections and two outcomes uh, that would come as a result of them. Uh, it's not quite as clear in Daniel 12 that there are two resurrections, but it does make it clear that there are two outcomes. Here, uh, in John 5, it's much clearer that there are, in fact, two. So, um, quoting from John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, uh, here Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, so there's one, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, that would be two. So here we have a clear distinction. There's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. And again, it is the description of a different outcome. Obviously, life would be different than judgment. And those who participate in it, he, Jesus says, those who have done good would participate in the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil would participate in the resurrection of judgment. There's a third passage um, that speaks of this idea of two resurrections. Not, Again, not as clear that there are two distinct resurrections, but again, a focus on the idea that there are uh, resurrections of two groups um, that uh, have different outcomes. So this is in Acts chapter 24 and verse 15. Acts 24 and verse 15, where uh, here it says, having a hope in God that these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So again, we get this description that there are uh, two groups that participate in the resurrection, and the two groups are the just and the unjust. Now, if we're to, to just reason through that and look at just what we have examined already, the just and the unjust, or those who have done good and those who have done evil, or or however we want to categorize it, that encompasses all of humanity. In other words, ev everybody who has ever lived has either done good or done evil. Everyone who has ever lived has either made a choice to follow God and, and seek to harmonize our lives with him, or we have made a choice to do evil and have followed a different path apart from what God would call us to do. So, here, in just looking at these three passages in Daniel 12, John 5, and Acts 24, it, it becomes clear that the Bible's description is that everyone, in some capacity and in some way, um, would participate in two resurrections, or, or at least would be resurrected at some point, um, and that there, there will be some sort of outcome for everyone uh, in relation to those resurrections. So then, it brings us to the question, well, does the Bible tell us uh, in some capacity or give us more detail about what this 
process of resurrection would look like. Well, there are two passages that describe when the resurrection of the righteous or the just or those who have done good um, would take place. Um, and uh, there are more, but these are the, the two that are the clearest uh, about how that uh, will play out. So the first one is found in First Thessalonians 4 uh, and verses 16 and 17, where uh, here Paul writes, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will, uh, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Here, notice uh, Paul's description. He says, the dead in Christ will rise. So that would be the resurrection, that resurrection of the righteous or the just um, that we were reading about a moment ago. And here, Paul ties it to um, uh, the Lord himself descending from heaven and, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Well, from other passages in the Bible, we understand that to refer to when Jesus comes uh, at a second coming. That would be uh, the time in which, at the close of this earth's history, uh, he, in fact, returns to this earth. And when he does that, this is one of the events associated with that, is this resurrection of those who he says are in Christ. The other passage uh, is 1 Corinthians 15, um, and uh, here, starting in verse 51, um, where again Paul writes, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. And here he's Notice the analogy he uses of comparing death to sleep. Uh, it, it's the idea that one is not conscious of what is going on around uh, when we are dead. Um, instead, we are just sleeping uh, for a period of time until the moment of the resurrection. So he's saying here, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So he again draws our attention to that trumpet, just as he did in the previous verse we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then he describes the process. He says, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Then in verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So here, Paul is describing our current condition, uh, where we are now, as being mortal. In other words, we have the possibility of dying. He then says that it's at this moment, at the second coming, at the last trumpet, when a resurrection takes place of those who have died awaiting Jesus' return, when they are raised to life, then is when immortality is given. Then is when we have the possibility of living a life that will no longer involve death. And so this is then the, the process that Jesus was talking about when he talked about those who have done good to the resurrection of life. That's why it's a resurrection of life. It is a resurrection to uh, then living eternally uh, in a place in which the problems of sin would be no more. So this gives us a, the framework then, or the setting in which a resurrection, and more specifically a resurrection of life, takes place. The question then comes of saying, well, does the Bible then tell us when their resurrection of the unjust um, or resurrection of judgment or some translations say resurrection of condemnation, um, when does that take place? Well, uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, uh, that's where we find uh, the description of uh, this particular resurrection. And notice here in Revelation chapter 20, 
is where there's a clear distinction um, between two resurrections and two different outcomes. Uh, and so we'll dive in there, Revelation chapter 20, and we're looking at verse 4. Uh, and here, uh, the Apostle John writes, he says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and not, had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life, notice the, the reference there to the resurrection, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So here John gives us the description of what he sees here and God reveals to him. And what he sees is the the results of that first resurrection. Here he's describing what it is that happened to those who had been raised from the dead at Jesus' second coming, that they are uh, entrusted with this responsibility. He says that they he saw them on thrones, and the, those who were seated on the thrones had authority to judge. Um, and so they, they are those who are participating in this activity that John sees. And notice there at the beginning of verse 5, he makes a reference to the alternate resurrection. He says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So he's describing, again, this distinction, but he adds that detail that between a first resurrection and a second resurrection, there is a period of time that passes that is 1,000 years. This is what a number of Bible students have referred to as a millennium. The word millennium does not appear here in Revelation chapter 20, but millennium is just a, a, a Latin phrase that refers to a thousand years, millennium meaning thousand, enum meaning years, and so there's where the idea of a, a millennium fits in with this particular passage. And notice then, as he continues in verse 5 and into verse 6, he then says, this is the first resurrection, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So here, again, he draws the distinction between two pieces. So he talks about a first resurrection, which is what we have been exploring uh, together. And then in uh, verse 6, he makes reference to a second death that is a uh, what he implies is the result of a second resurrection. So even though he doesn't specifically use the, the two alternate phrases, we can see that there are two pieces to what he's talking about. So if there's a first resurrection, that obviously implies that there's a second. And then if there is a second death, that implies that there is a first death. So he connects these two pieces together without using the explicit terms, but we've already explored the idea of a first resurrection. That then leaves the second resurrection. And the second resurrection is what is described here as taking place after a thousand years have passed. And at the end of those thousand years uh, is then when what Jesus called the resurrection of judgment or the resurrection of condemnation uh, would take place. In other words, all of those who had not committed their lives to following Jesus, uh, had not chosen to live a life in harmony with what God has called us to, there is where there is a resurrection that involves all of them, uh, and they are brought to life. Now, this is where all of what we have talking of, talked about now is pulled together. If uh, there is there are two resurrections, 
if those who participate in those resurrections are uh, two different choices that have been made in this world. So those who have chosen to follow God in this world participate in the first resurrection. Um, they, they had not received their reward before that. They had not received any uh, kind of, you know, going to heaven or, or anything like that. Instead, they have uh, unconsciously rested in the graves until Jesus returns and Jesus brings them back to life. That leaves open the, then the question of saying, if there is this second resurrection, a resurrection of judgment or a resurrection of condemnation, um, and that uh, those who participate in it are those who have not chosen to uh, commit their lives to following God and receive the gift of salvation through Jesus, um, then uh, if, if our nature as human beings is not dualistic and there is not a soul that is separate from the body, uh, then that would mean that this is when the fate uh, that comes uh, would, in fact, be received. And that's where at the end of Revelation chapter 20, there is a description of a judgment scene, uh, often referred to as the great white throne judgment, because that's the description that appears there. So in Revelation 20, verse 11, uh, John says, I saw a great white throne, there's where the term comes from, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So here is where there is uh, a final reckoning, if you will, uh, an accountability for what decisions are made in this life. And I find this, this particular teaching very, very helpful. And I, I say that because we live in a world in which there's plenty of evil and, and there are plenty of wrong things that happen. And in looking at it, the truth is that sometimes some of those individuals who have been responsible for some of the greatest evils uh, in the world, um, sometimes it looks like they end up uh, taking an easy way out. Um, you know, there have been uh, particular uh, high-profile uh, cases, even over the last century, uh, in which there are individuals who committed terrible, terrible acts. Uh, and, you know, at some point, just before they got caught or just before they had to face uh, consequences for what they had done, they took their own lives. And there are those who look at those kinds of things and say, well, well hold on, that seems like an, a, a real cheap and easy way out. Um or there are people who are never caught and there's never any accountability and they go to their graves um, without any kind of, of uh, reckoning or accountability uh, on this, uh, in this existence. And so here, the Bible describes a time in which every human being who has ever lived will uh, stand before God and give an account uh, for what it is that we have done in this life. If we have chosen Jesus, and, and you know your previous podcasts have talked about it, Travis, uh, we have the privilege of having a forgiveness that comes because of what Jesus has done for us. And there, that grace uh, that he offers uh, deals with uh, the sins that we have committed, and he calls us to live a new life as we uh, accept that uh, free gift of salvation and make the choice to, to walk with him going forward. But for those who do not make that uh, choice and do not receive that gift of forgiveness, um, here is where uh, God has the records. In other words, he 
he has greater in knowledge storage capacity than any library that we can think of or any um, you know online uh, server farm. Um, he has all of the records of everything that has happened in this life. And here, all of those who uh, have in some way um, disregarded what he has called us to and have engaged in evil in this world, there is where God reckons all of that and can specifically take uh, each person and say, this is where that uh, judgment for those uh, evils that have taken place in this world does finally take place. Um, you know, I, I've heard the phrase that says the wheels of justice turn slowly. We can look at it this in, in the broad scheme of the history of this world and say, it does appear sometimes that here in this world, people seem to get away with things. There will be a time in which the wheels of justice will catch up. And here God is the one who brings all of those items to the surface and, and addresses all of it and says, this must be handled and dealt with. And the final fate is what then appears in the rest of Revelation 20. It says, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each, accor each of them, according to what they had done. And the final result is in uh, verse 14 and 15, where it says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the final fate then of this second resurrection is everyone gives a, it must be held accountable for what they have done in this life who has not made a choice to receive the gift of salvation Jesus affords us. And the final fate is then eternal non-existence. There's not, again, like we've emphasized already, there's not a separate soul, uh, a, a disembodied entity to go on in existence. Instead, there is a, a reckoning, and that final reckoning is what the Bible calls a second death, which is a death from which there is no resurrection. It, it's the final end, and no longer would that person ever exist for the rest of eternity. Yeah, and it makes sense because if we understand... Uh, life, humanity as um, animated bodies, right? We're animated bodies. In other words, when our body ceases to exist, we cease to exist. When our body um, comes back with, um, you know, the the power of God, the, the life of God in us, then we, then we come back to life. And the simple illustration I always use when I'm teaching this is just the idea of, of a light, right? You have a you need, you need two things to turn the light on. You need a bulb and you need electricity. And uh, you take you break the bulb and the light ceases to exist. You, you pull the cord, the electricity, the light ceases to exist. But with the two together, then you have light. And I think our lives are, are kind of similar. You know, we exist, we are alive because of the spirit of God and, and the body that we dwell in. And all that together integrates into who we are. And so the, the good news of this, right, is that uh, if we have, or our loved ones have laid down their lives for now, um, they are literally at rest, right? They're not um, up above us. They're not floating around us. And they're definitely not down in some, um, you know, imaginary uh, 
<laughs> a fire pit in the center of the earth. Um, these are all ideas that came about to explain um, this dualistic teaching that all those are essentially solved, all those conundrums of, of what happens when you die, it becomes very simple. Um, until the time when Jesus comes, the all the dead are dead, and when he comes, the righteous are the first to come alive, and, and then they go to heaven, and then the earth is is uh, essentially empty of humanity for a thousand years. And then uh, the Bible describes the, the city of God coming back and, and heaven coming back to earth. And then the wicked are resurrected and they face judgment. The whole earth turns into a big molten lake of fire. And the wicked are essentially drowned in the lake of fire, similar to that of Noah's time when the world became a, you know covered in water and the wicked were drowned. This time the wicked are burned and they cease to exist. And then God recreates the the earth. Uh, I love that because then essentially everything that was lost because of sin is restored. And not only restored, but we also now have the city of God, New Jerusalem. All of heaven has transferred to um, the earth in the central um, kind of uh, dwelling place of God is moved to earth and God lives with us and we live with him throughout eternity. It's such a beautiful picture and it really does vindicate God to some degree from these ideas that have been, um, the the downside of this, right, is this idea that, you know, not just that the wicked are, uh, that they face judgment, but that they never stop facing it. Essentially, they, they continue to suffer endlessly, never ending throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. And I think that has discouraged people. Some people have even left belief in Christianity because of that misunderstanding. It's unfortunate, and it paints uh, a um, very unfair description of God. Um, Not only is there a question of timing, there's also a question of if the Bible, in fact, teaches that God is a God of love, why would he? Uh, engage in in behavior that we as human beings would consider to be evil. In other words, we we consider torturing someone and allowing them to to undergo torture uh, for you know any long period of time or even a short period of time uh, to be an evil that is worthy of condemnation uh, and even uh, you know judicial restrictions on. Uh, and yet God is painted in those terms and said to be loving and at the same time to uh, torture someone uh, in fires of hell uh, forever and ever and ever. Well, that uh, raises that question to say, can we in fact have a, a perspective or a glimpse that God is both loving and just, that he handles evil that has been done in this world in such a way that there is an accountability but that he is not in the process of dealing with it himself becoming evil. And, and it is this picture that we have just laid out uh, of seeing how it is that across the history of this world, the Bible describes how God deals with the problem of sin and that it will be in a way that is upright. It is righteous. It is good. And at the same time, it is not pretending like sin hasn't happened, not sweeping it under the rug, 
but providing an accountability for all uh, of the evil that has taken place. And so it paints a beautiful picture of God's love as well as God's justice, and that all of those pieces fall into place in harmony with the very character of God. Yeah, and I think for somebody who says, okay, well, if the dead are really dead and they're not spirits floating around, either you know, good ghosts or bad ghosts, then what about the spiritual world? Um, I know, you know, that I have experienced something supernatural, and I've talked to many, many people who have had some experience in the supernatural world, and and so what we're saying here is not a denial of that. In fact, if we go back to some of the earlier episodes, we we've talked about this concept of the great controversy. And the the whole premise of the great controversy is that there is a spiritual world, that er, there are angels, good and bad, um, that are constantly engaged in a, uh, a battle for our, um, you know, our allegiance, and and that the devil and his angels um, are tempting us to disbelieve God, and that the angels and and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father are all working together to point us to salvation and to point us to uh, the path of everlasting life. And so, you know, there's passages like, uh, you know, just kind of, I know we're kind of coming to the end, but I did want to share this passage from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. So here Paul is acknowledging that there is a spiritual world, that we are being influenced one way or another by. But what we're saying today, Daniel, is that these are not departed human beings, that these are actually angels, good or bad, and that humanity is um, is not a uh, the same nature as, as angels, that we... The way God created us um, is is unique and beautiful. In fact, if we go back to Genesis, it says that we were actually made in the image of God, right? And that he saw everything was good up until the point where he made us, and he said we were very good. So there's something about our creation we won't even fully understand until we get to heaven. But um, I think that gives gives us hope too, right? That these, we're not trying to deny this, this spiritual battle that we're facing. We're just saying, Daniel and the Bible is teaching, I believe, that these forces around us are, are not human beings. Right. And there, there are a number of passages in the Bible that point to that. Uh, not only uh, Jesus, for example, when he lived in this world, uh, you know, he encountered uh, issues like demon possession, uh, as well as uh, you know, those those very uh, uh, fallen angels um, were going and uh, interacting with the world around them. You know, the story that comes to mind is when uh, the, the demons cause a group of pigs to run off of a cliff. Um, and so there, there's clearly a, a spiritual warfare going on and the world beyond our, uh, you know, our empirical perception uh, in which uh, there are uh, the angels um, that are in fact uh, interacting with 
uh, things that happen in this world. Um, they are just that. They are the fallen angels, uh, as described in Revelation 12. Um, they are not uh, departed human beings who are continuing in some alternate existence. That's right. And I think that gives gives us peace, you know, to know that, you know, if we have someone that we, you know, wasn't a believer, they're not sitting in a, in a, like a fire now burning and being, you know, continually tortured. And on the other side, we, we, we can know that our, our beloved family members and friends who have passed away, they're not in heaven, you know, just looking down and seeing all the suffering that's happening here, that they're just at peace, they're at rest. And the beautiful picture of this is that we don't trickle into heaven, Daniel. We, we all go together as one family, one human family. And I love that because that's, that's essentially a lot of the symbolism the Bible uses is this idea of a wedding banquet or a wedding party. And, uh, you know, we know that weddings aren't trickle-in events, right? Weddings are uh, everyone comes, everybody's there, and it's a, it's a big celebration. And I, I look forward to that. I look forward to that day when, when all humanity from the time of Abel, obviously the first to, to pass away, all the way till today, all those who have died will, will be raised up. And if we are so fortunate to live until the day Jesus comes, we will see them with our own eyes coming up from the graves, and we will be changed, and uh, there's going to be one giant family reunion in heaven. So, Daniel, I'm going to give you the last word on this topic today. Um, How does this, you know, topic of the two resurrections, why why is it relevant for us today as we um, prepare for the second coming of Jesus, and how does it give you hope? Oh, it is, it's central to uh, Christian life. Uh, In other words, there are, um, so many different facets that tie in uh, to even life today. Um, you know, it not only talks about the importance and priority that God places on uh, our bodies themselves. Um, if he considers us uh, valuable enough that he is going to resurrect uh, the body someday, uh, and he has given us uh, our very existence, you know, he has created us as the animated bodies that we are. Uh, he calls us to take care of them. Um, and that's that's why, you know, I think there is an importance and a focus on health, uh, of taking care of this body that God has given to us. Um, and so there, uh, that's one of the implications I understand for today, is uh, the value and importance of the body uh, and taking care of it in the way in which uh, would honor God uh, in all aspects of our lives. Um, you know, uh, another one is um, the uh, understanding that we have uh, of where it is that uh, those who have passed away, particularly our loved ones, are. That they are um, unconscious uh, of what is taking place around us. Uh, instead, uh, they are awaiting the uh, resurrection and the hope um, that we have of uh, spending eternity uh, in paradise, the perfect place that God has promised to us. Um, and there it brings to the, the decision that all of us have to make, Travis, where we stand today. Uh, in other words, knowing that there is a promise of a resurrection uh, for those who believe in Jesus, a, a resurrection to life, uh, and that there is uh, an accountability uh, that will come for those who do not choose Jesus. There is the two paths that are open to us uh, are the invitation for us to choose today. 
Are we going to live for Jesus today? Are we going to commit our lives to following Him? And as we make that choice today, we have that great hope. Um, we have that uh, promise, uh, and we know that God can't lie. And so the promise that He has made is the reality that we have uh, a world, uh, a earth made new, where we will have the opportunity to spend eternity with Jesus, with all of those who have longed for His appearing, and there, all of the problems of sin uh, that have been so much a part of this world, all of the evil, all of the suffering and pain and sorrow, all of that will be no more. And there we will have the, the chance to spend eternity there. And it's, it's such an exciting thought. I can't wait. Amen. Well, I hope again that you were blessed as much as I was as we went through that study together. Um, if you have any questions, I want to encourage you to reach out to me at Travis at Aventology.com. Um, we will be posting the article as soon as it is available um, in the show notes here. And uh, in the meantime, I want to encourage you to keep studying for yourself. Uh, we have episodes dealing with this topic in particularly on the podcast. So if you go back to um, some of our early episodes, particularly um, episode 10, um, which was entitled, Does God Believe in Hell? Uh, I also want to encourage you to check, check out um, episodes 8 and 9. 8 was um, contemplating the second death. And episode 9 was the death and resurrection of planet Earth, where we talk about the millennium. So those are episodes I would recommend right away to, to listen to if you enjoyed this one. Um, again, you can also uh, check out our YouTube channel. And uh, we have an episode in, the, in our YouTube series, Signs of the Second Coming, that deals with this topic. I'll be posting a link to that as well. And I just want to encourage you to keep studying. You know, there's a lot of deception in the world today. And, but when we understand the truth, we will be, uh, to a large degree, um, uh, safe and secure from that deception because we will understand Bible truth and we will understand um, what God says about uh, humanity and what happens to us after we die. Uh, so again, uh, I want to encourage you to check out our website, Adventology.com. Sign up for our newsletter if you haven't done so. Uh, rate us, review us, uh, share the message. We uh, need your help. We can't do this alone. And again, we encourage you to pray for us. And we thank you for the many that do pray for us and continue to support this podcast in any way that you can. So I think that's it for today. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and week. And I look forward to seeing you back here next time for another episode of Adventology. Until then, Maranatha. Maranatha.